He's an active duty police officer. His own close calls with shootings led him to go back to school, drives him to do what he does today, and inspires him to help with the Grand Rapids Police Department incident where a police officer has been charged with murder. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. Calling us from the southwest United States, we have Daner Carr, who's an active duty police officer. That means we're not going to say the name of the agency he works for. Got nothing to hide. It's just one of the things. We all have the First Amendment, free speech. However, when you are a police officer, you are not permitted to talk as a spokesperson for your agency. So to cover bases, we don't mention the agency. Let's just say it's a large police department in the Southwest United States. Daniel, thanks for being guest on Law Enforcement Today's show, and thanks for your service. Very much appreciated. Sir, thank you so much. It is truly a privilege to be on with you today. And we're going to be talking about a, a couple things, and most of them really misunderstood. And I always say this, the media really is not our friend. When I say our friend, For years, for decades, we have relied on the news media to tell our stories, police officers, and they've done a horrible job. Now it's so biased that when I say the media, that's just not just the news, that's social media, it's also Hollywood, that's movies, that's TV shows. The the stories they put out are not even remotely close to the truth. So many people have misconception, and many people are guided by headlines instead of facts and story. So Daniel... First of all, how long have you been policing? So I've been a police officer for just over 17 years. So you're no rookie. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing because we all start as rookies, but it's a steep learning curve. And how long a period of time would you say it was for you before you felt like you were a seasoned officer and really knew what you're doing? No, I want to say it was about five years. After about five years on, I felt pretty confident in what I was doing day to day as a police officer. Gotcha. But for all of us, it starts with the academy or some sort of schooling, and you're no exception to that. Yes, sir. That's correct. Absolutely. So I I started off in college, you know, being a law enforcement and justice administration major. And, you know, I was always interested in policing, but it was just always theory and stats. And it was just so far removed from reality. So right after college, I did get into the police academy. And I mean, it was just a quick dose of reality. So while I was in the police academy, uh, within the first couple of months, which into a six month academy, the deputy chief walked into our academy class one day, uh, unannounced. We didn't know that he was coming. So it was one of those things where we just knew, oh God, this this can't be good. We had no doubt that we were just in such huge trouble. But they all called us all into the gym and the deputy chief chief of police, he had to sit down. And it was it was pretty strange because he was looked like he was holding back tears. And he told us at that point that two of our police officers were just killed in an ambush attack. Uh, he described the call in, do, in, in, in detail uh, about what he knew at the time. And that's always tough. Even when you're, you're brand new. And look, when you're in academy, I'll be honest with you. I thought I knew a lot. I thought I was well-prepared. I really had no idea what I was signing up for. I had no idea how violent and traumatic policing really could be and would be for me. 
Sir, I, I feel the exact same way. And like I said, that all the going into the police academy with a bachelor's degree, like I was, I really thought that I had a handle on this, that I understood. But it wasn't until later on that day that our police academy instructors, who were usually not very nice to us, in just a very human and, and poignant moment, said that if any of us wanted to quit, now is the time. That there were real risks to this job, and that if you wanted to quit, no one would blame you. And, and listen, I tell you, not one person in my academy class quit. And it was right then that that taught me something about the men and women that I was working with and training with. That's what the brotherhood and sisterhood is. And that's what I learned what the thin blue line is about. The wall between order and chaos and policing at its best. You know, it's just regular people who have a common goal to make the community safer at a risk to their own personal safety. And that was more of an education in that day than I had in four years of college. I'll be honest with you, Daniel. I I, I went through my career convincing myself that I was just a really good cop and nothing bad would ever happen to me. So when you had the news from the deputy chief about two officers being ambushed, I would think the reaction was that's horrible, but that never happened to me. I, I just could not imagine people even shooting at me until it started happening. Were you feeling the same way, or were you immediately struck by the gravity of the situation? I was struck by the gravity of the situation. And in that moment, I I thought that, you know, this is something real. This is something that could happen to me. The two officers who were killed were actually rehire officers who had more than 20 years of experience on the streets, and they were working day shift in not a very dangerous part of town. So in the moment, with all that gravity, I, I knew that it could happen to me one day, but I'll be honest, when I eventually got into, got on the street on a day-to-day, just taking calls for service, I rarely ever had that thought cross my mind. Right. I, I say it all the time. If I really thought about it, I'd never leave my patrol car. And everyone I knew, we all knew the risks of the job. However, it's a psychological trick we play, I, I guess that I played. I can't speak for them. That This would never happen to me. Although I do recall having a conversation with two of my side partners and said, if something bad happens to me, and this really happened, if something bad happens to me, if I get shot and I wind up dying, do not let me die in an alley or in a curb or in a street. Put me in a police wagon, at least let me die there. And that I made them promise that. And I was probably 23, 24 years old when I did that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's common for us to to put that out of our minds. Otherwise, you're right. It it wouldn't be when I was actually working and taking dangerous calls and high risk traffic stops in the middle of the night in bad areas. That wasn't when I thought about it. It was later on at home with with my wife or my family thinking about what I had done. That's when it would kind of hit me. But it's nothing in the moment because you're you said it exactly correct. You wouldn't leave your police car if that was constantly going through your mind. No, and man, we got so much more to talk about. And we got to talk about close calls, but I do have to examine this a little bit more because in, in my years in the Baltimore Police Department, and I, I'm going to paraphrase because I lost track. I think there were 12 officers killed in the line of duty from the time I was on the job. Since 1980 to today, it's probably 17 or 18. And to be honest with you, as violent as that city is, and it's very violent. I'm surprised more aren't killed. And we lose more officers every every year to suicide than we do to line of duty attacks and killings. Car accidents are up there. Fires are up there. Heart attacks are up there. There's so many things that 
contribute to an, an early death for our law enforcement officers. But if you're like me, Daniel, I didn't think around 21, 22. That's correct. I, I also wasn't really thinking about it. I wasn't thinking about stuff like, you know, the average life expectancy for a normal American is 78 years, and the average life expectancy for a police officer is 66 years. It's the shift work. It's, yeah. the, it's the stress. And that wasn't something I thought about in my early 20s when I started in this career. Add into it all the stress, the highs and lows, the adrenaline dumps, and also the boredom and not to forget about the horrible food and horrible eating habits. Yes, there's a reason why we are equated with donuts, and we'll talk about that later on. This is Law Enforcement Today's show, and we return to our conversation with Daniel. We're going to talk about how a close call with deadly force led him to make changes in his career. We'll be right back. I have some exciting news to share with you. You are going to love my Your Diet Do-Over Do-It-Yourself course on HarmonyWithFood.com, which means you could do everything at your own pace. I put my heart and soul into this course. Have you been on every diet there is only to gain the weight back? If your relationship with food is, well, not that good, you should purchase the Your Diet Do-Over course. Go over to HarmonyWithFood.com, click the Your Diet Do-Over tab, and get started today. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app be sure to look for me and follow me my name's john the letter j wiley w-i-l-e-y you can also search for at l-e-t radio show that's john j wiley w-i-l-e-y at l-e-t radio show on the clubhouse drop-in audio chat app This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're turning our conversation with Daniel Carr. He is an active duty police officer. Been on the job 17 years, and he's from an agency, a large agency, in the southwest portion of the United States. That's all I can say. Early in his career, which we'll talk about, he had a very close call that involved potential deadly use of force, a shooting. Are you able to talk about that, Daniel? Yes, I am. What happened? So this was a case, and a lot of officers are involved in officer-involved shootings, and, and luckily I, I wasn't. But this was the this was the closest it came. And I was working graveyard as a rookie in an area that was unofficially called the war zone. I say unofficially, but it was kind of more like an official name because about a decade later, politicians and the mayor came out and said that we're not going to call it the war zone anymore, and they renamed it something else. So it was the most dangerous part of the city. I was brand new a couple months on, working graveyard. There was a call for service of a 15-year-old kid, and he called that people were knocking on his door at an apartment complex, and they were threatening him. And listen, this just wasn't a big deal because we had shootings, stabbings, armed robbery every night. So this call didn't seem like a big deal. Uh, you know, dispatch sends us the call. Um, dispatch tells the, the kid who called, 15-year-old, that, hey, police are on scene. You know, the next person who knocks on the door is probably going to be the cops. So we get there, me and my partner, we knock on the door, and we announce that we are police officers. I was standing on the right side of the door, and my partner and my best friend in the world was standing on the left side of the door. This kid opened the door, and he's got a gun in his hand. Now, the gun is pointed down, but I know from my training in the police academy that someone can move a gun from a pointed down position to at you in shooting in tenths of a second, faster than a human is able to respond. Yeah. Uh, so I drew out, I yelled commands from to drop the gun, 
And uh, he just, he wasn't dropping the gun, just staring at me with these dead blank eyes. And it felt like forever. Uh, I could feel the, the slack and the trigger starting to release. And the best way that I can explain it is that it just felt forever. And I kept thinking to myself, why isn't this kid dropping the gun? Eventually, he dropped the gun. And uh, listen, I, I tell you that if they had put me on a polygraph right after this happened, I would have passed saying that we were in this situation of him not dropping the gun for eight to 10 seconds. But at the time we had these, there were no body cams. We had these belt tape recorders that only recorded audio. Listening back to the audio was less than three seconds. Yeah. Time slowed down. I had tunnel vision. Listening to that audio, my partner was yelling at me, but I never heard him. Right. Oh, man, I can, t- I can relate to that. I, I tell this all the time. The audio distortion in really bad situations, I remember one that I, I quote quite often. I had a partner riding with me. I was a sergeant, and we were picking up reports, and uh, a shooting erupted, and it was me bailing out of the police car, chasing a guy, gunfight. But before I got out of the car, after the head-on collision, I, my partner was yelling at the top of his lungs, don't get out of the car. And I was... I, I had no idea what he was saying. It's almost as if someone had a TV on another room and you could barely hear it. Yes, sir. It's it's funny and, what the mind does to you. It really, it, things slowed down. You mentioned that. It slowed down for you, didn't it? It, it slowed down. Like I, I honestly believed it was eight to 10 seconds. It felt like forever. But I mean, it was it was such a moment when I listened to that that belt tape audio recorder and saw it was less than three seconds. I mean, I almost didn't believe it. Again, I, I, I would have passed the polygraph test that it was eight to 10 seconds. And, and this thing, it ended up being a pellet gun that looked real. Right. So it, it wasn't even a real gun. And I just, I just thought to myself, and this is one of the thoughts that have just haunted me the last 15 years. What if I had pulled the trigger? You know, what would the narrative be? It'd be a 15-year-old kid who called the police for assistance, get a toy gun. Cops gave him less than three seconds to comply. I mean, if I had pulled the trigger 16 years ago, and instead of having the privilege to talk with you right now, would I be sitting in jail trying to convince a parole board to release me early? And these are just some of the thoughts that stay with you and just never leave you when you're in this line of work. Nowadays, that's the price many people pay. We we had a, a motto we police by is I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by six. And that was even back in the 1980s. And what that means is I'd rather be arrested and charged and go to a jury trial than to be uh, the, the, the victim at a funeral. And sometimes uh, when people say they're, they're interested in police work, I, I'm great. There's a couple of things I say to them. Number one is, You've got a a general practitioner you see once a year for a physical. You've got a dentist you see once a year for a tooth uh, examination, teeth examination. Get yourself a trauma-certified, trauma-trained, trauma-experienced therapist and see them once a year. Don't make the department send you. Just see them. Be proactive about it because you're going to need it because there are too many close calls. You see too many things and you can be forced, just like Daniel was, just like I was, into making a decision that could be life or death. Absolutely. The mental health of this job is, is almost as important as staying, is staying in shape when it comes to physical health. Because that stuff that you carry with you, that stuff that, that you see that haunts you, you don't want that to be taken out on your family and on your friends or to resort to alcohol. Uh, to get it out and to express it in, in a positive manner, whether it's with a therapist or at the gym, uh, that, that is what I would encourage police officers to do. And I know that's what you always encourage people to do here on this show. Right. I got to ask you this. Did that kid realize how close he came? 
Uh, yes, he did. Uh, I, I believe that he did. So after it was all, after it was over, I was, I was fuming. I was, and I'm a, I'm a mellow guy. <laughs> I'm nice to everybody, but I was fuming. I was, I was so mad. I had to walk away from this kid. I had to walk away and my partner had to deal with him. And my, I, I wasn't even in the right state of mind. I was so upset of what almost happened that I could even explain things to him. So my partner had to be the one to do it. Look, I got no beef with that whatsoever. And I tell people, in the shootings I was involved in, I got so angry that someone who didn't know me was shooting at me and trying to kill me. And it was almost like a, a primordial anger. It doesn't make sense logic. I can't explain it. So when I see videos of a cop losing it on someone, and I go, well, number one, I'm worried about PTSD. I'm worried about overall stress. But when it's right after a potentially deadly incident like you had, I am not shocked at all that they were out of control. I feel the exact same way. Not shocked that they were out of control. Um, the difference with the difference with me and with officers who do go out of control, just to be as, as honest as I can be about it, isn't necessarily anything that I did, but it's having a good partner and a best friend there uh-huh. with me when this happens. I'm so glad you said that. And I call that a squad concept. And a really easy way to explain it is everybody has a bad day. Everybody can have a bad moment. For goodness sakes, I, I've never met a Mahatma Gandhi, one of the nicest people in the world, he could probably lose it one day. With a squad concept, when someone loses it, you shuffle them over the car and say, I got this, you go over there. And sometimes it's them, you got to do that for them. Uh, because we all have bad moments. And there's an old saying in police work, the cop that seems so rude, who seems so insensitive, you don't know what he just came from. He could have just came from a call where he spent the last six hours investigating the murder of a child. And... He's not dealing with it well. I say he. He or she's not dealing with it well. So the squad concept and and without going into politics, the whole thing in Minneapolis, I am shocked to this day, to this day, that none of the other officers with the George Floyd case said, hey, we got it from here, get in the car, uh, and, and pulled them off. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. We're talking with Daniel Carr. We're going to talk about how the trauma and stress and use of potential deadly force impacted his decision-making, and not just his education, but his career as well. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours, the Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. Return a conversation with Daniel Carr. He is an active duty police officer, more than 17 years on the job. He is employed with a large police department in the Southwest United States. So we're not going to say the name. And he now does investigations of use of force for his agency. And he's also heavily involved in the Grand Rapids Police Department case involving Officer Chris Schur and murder charges, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. 
Daniel, it's obvious you're no stranger to the the the, the trauma of police work uh, and the, the the close calls. I I had close calls, and you were so right when you said I didn't have a chance to get afraid when it's happening. It was afterwards, and I know shootings I've been involved in. I know close calls where it's like I don't to this day I can't tell you why I didn't fire the gun. It just didn't. It wasn't the right scenario in my mind, so I didn't. But that goes contrary to what a lot of people believe. And what the media would tell you is the first two shootings I was in, I never even fired a shot back. They shot at me. The media won't tell you that. And that's not uncommon anywhere in the United States, even today. So there was a a line you crossed where you decided, I'm going to do something different in my career. Was there something you put your thumb on to say, okay, I want to go back to school. I want to go towards investigating use of force. What was it? Yes, sir. So it was that, it was that, it was an incident that I talked about. And then just in general, just taking calls for service in a, in a dangerous, in a dangerous city, just trying to figure out why people were doing what they, what they were doing, uh, why police officers were reacting in certain ways. You know, was it, was it policy? Was it law? Was it culture? Like what was really behind this, this whole, uh, machine in the police department. And I had so many questions. And my, my first thought was to fill that with, with education. So back in 2008, I went back for a master's degree in criminal justice. Uh, I finished that in 2010. And then later on in 2015, I went to law school and I did a part-time law school program. Uh, and I graduated and then passed the bar in 2019. Uh, so I did the master's degree and the law degree, you know, both part-time while working full-time for the for the police department. Dude, I'm not worried to have this conversation with you. I'm, I'm serious. Two, I, I know people have done this. They go back to school while they're active duty police. And it's hard enough a job just being a full-time police officer, having a relationship, being a dad, whatever it might be. But throw school into the mix and a master's degree on top of that, then law school. I'm I'm really impressed. Oh, thank you, sir. I I, I appreciate that. Um, it was just uh, time consuming, and I made it a priority of something I wanted to do. So I just managed my time uh, to to get it done. So the stress of the job, the close calls, that kind of forced you into making these decisions. And then did your career change? Because I, I know it did. It went into investigating use of force, and a lot of people really don't comprehend what that means and what that's all about. Yes, sir, it did. I, I actually went into, after about 10, 10 years on patrol and four years uh, doing the DWI unit, going after drunk drivers, uh, I went to a unit which was essentially Internal Affairs Force Division, which is a branch of Internal Affairs that only looks at and investigates officer-involved use of force incidents, anything from as minor to resisted handcuffing to an officer-involved shooting. That's not easy. And I, I look, I'll be totally 100% honest with you. When people mention internal affairs, my my defenses come up. And that's, look, that started when I was a young cop, getting called in, and I didn't know anything from anything. But what a lot of people don't realize is, and I'm not going to put you on the spot and, and criticize what you do, but what a lot of people don't realize, at least in my agency, when you were involved in use of force, or let's say shootings as an officer, and you shot someone, if they survived or died, it was a, a criminal investigation and you were the suspect. They were the victim. It didn't matter what they did. And you were treated as a suspect until it was exonerated or justified. I never really thought, 
how difficult a job that could be for the investigator. Yes, sir. And for at least the investigation side, at least the way we do it. So the criminal investigation is separate from the administrative investigation. So what I what I would do when I was working in Internal Affairs Force Division was just to look at whether or not the police department policy was followed. Nothing to do with it. If it was criminal or not, that was someone else's. Just purely on whether or not the use of force was within department policy. And that's a gray area because every department is different. And uh, I know you've gotten this in your career. I've had people, when I was policing in Baltimore, the the L.A. incident to begin with, uh, with Rodney King, would come up and chew me out. Los Angeles is the other side of the country. They have different laws, different rules, different regulations in their department. I'm not saying what the officer did was right or wrong, but I had nothing to do with it. But why people paint us all with this broad brush, I'll never understand. Yeah, yes, sir. We had a really controversial officer-involved shooting in 2014, and you know it, it was one officer here, but it was there were protests around the the entire city, and, and it was part of a, a larger protest that were happening around the country. And you know, I'm from a police department that's over a thousand officers, and you know, even even locally, you know, trying to take out what one or two officers did on a thousand different individuals is it always struck me as strange. Yeah, I, I, we're, we're, you said earlier in the conversation, Daniel, in the academy, we were all different, but we were all united in the same thing. One of the jokes we had back in the day was they'd say, well, what did the officer look like? And they'd say, oh, white guy, brown hair, mustache. Well, that was you know, a lot of us. However, we had a lot of police officers that were uh, typical, like myself, Irish Catholic, the, the stereotypical police. You had... African-American officers, you had gays, lesbians, Jews, Hindus, Muslims. We had every walk of life, even back in the 1980s. And everybody still was like, oh, they're the same uniform, they look the same, so therefore, individuality, and it doesn't exist, and they're all evil. And I never, I still to this day can't wrap my head around that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, what our department does is our department has body cameras. We're actually one of the very first police departments in the entire country to get body cameras. So, uh, you know, a lot of the, the issues with transparency that some of the other police departments have, we thankfully don't have that because we were one of the very first to um, um, invest in body cameras for the entire department. Back in the day, we didn't have them. And for a long time, I was thinking I wouldn't want to be a police with body cameras. Now, I'm of the mindset I would not want to go on the street without one. Because that would exonerate me from 99.9% of the complaints immediately. Especially discourtesy complaints. Absolutely. And if if my body, I said it the last, when I was on the street my last couple of years, I would always say that if my body camera wasn't working, I, I wouldn't leave, leave the, the parking lot of the substation. Uh, it, it has saved more officers than anything else. And just to bring that back to internal affairs, because we have this body camera and, and this body camera policy where these cameras have to be used, almost every use of force incident is captured on body camera footage. So being in, in internal affairs or internal affairs force and investigating this, it's not like there's anything that the investigator can do to change what's on that body camera video. You know, there's no magic button that anyone can press to erase it. I mean, the evidence is there. Uh, it is, it, unfortunately, it is what it is. And use of force has to be investigated for police departments to, to be transparent and to gain community trust. And what I would always say to people, would you rather have someone investigate this use of force 
uh, who is uh, who is also a, a police officer and not only understands what the officers are going through, but is really understands the policy. Would you rather have that individual investigate your use of force, or would you rather have every member of the city council pick their their their, their, their most um, loud and angry activists to be the ones to investigate? I know the answer and to that question. Police officers, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that, that's a no-brainer. I want someone who's been on a job that knows the job and knows the legality of the job. Worst worst case scenario, we we as cops, we don't want dirty cops, we don't want corrupt cops, and we don't want guys who are heavy-handed. Say guys, it's men and women as well. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We're talking with Daniel Carr. He's an active-duty police officer and investigates use of force. He's also got a master's degree. And he's a lawyer. And when we return, we're going to talk about his involvement with the Grand Rapids Police Department case involving Officer Christopher Schur. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Has this ever happened to you? You sign up for a free email newsletter, and within hours, you're receiving tons of spam. That won't happen when you subscribe for the free Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise all subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign up area. That's letradioshow.com. This is the Law Enforcement Day Show. Returning our conversation with Daniel Carr, an active duty police officer. He investigates the use of force. For Internal Affairs Division of his large Southwest United States Police Agency. He's got 17 plus years on the job. He's also got a master's degree and he is a lawyer as well. One of the things that I, I see these headlines all the time, and people love to ask me, what are your what's your your opinion about this case? And here's one I have a little bit of information on the, the Christopher, Officer Chris Schur case in Grand Rapids Police Department. I've seen pictures. I know not to trust what the media says. I know not to base my opinion off what they say. Uh, and I was I was not there. So I tell people all the time, I wasn't there. Were you there? Did you see what happened? And quite often, when I had a side partner, they didn't see everything I saw and vice versa. So you've, in your career, somehow gotten involved in this case, even though it's a totally different state and different agency as well, correct? It is. Correct. Yes, sir. How, or let me rephrase that. Why are you, why is this important to you? So the reason that this case is is important is because there are, and I'll tell you in a second how I got involved in this particular case, but the reason why this case is, is important to me is because, you know, there are approximately a thousand deadly officer-involved shootings around the country every year. And, you know, the police officers, we don't follow all of those cases. I mean, there's just too many. Uh, in order for police officers to be sitting in briefing or at a coffee shop talking about an officer-involved shooting, it, it, there really has to be something to it. And, and from what I've been able to tell, these cases that cops actually care about have to have a couple elements. One, the actions from the police officer have to be in the ballpark of being reasonable. And then two, the officer has to be charged. Uh, I mean, cops need to say, if I was in that situation, I probably would have done the same thing. And then realizing that doing the same thing could land them in prison for decades. Right. And, and so that's where we are with this case. Uh, Christopher Schur has been charged with second-degree murder, and most of us, if we followed our training, would have done the exact same thing, and that's where the heartache is. Reason I had Sergeant Keelan Darby on the phone 
uh, on the on the show, and her husband Ben Darby, uh, who is a police officer in Alabama, uh, was tried, convicted, and is doing twenty five years for murder for a line of duty shooting. That I can't see anything wrong with what he did. I I I, I find no fault at all. But people need to understand there was a time where we thought. I used to think, innocently enough, hey, if they're going to trial, the facts will speak for themselves and they'll be acquitted. There's a lot of hanky-panky that goes on trials and a lot of things that they fight hard to keep from being entered into evidence. And that was the case with Ben Darby. Chris Schur, uh, really short description of what happened. Really short description. This was a, a, a traffic stop for a suspected stolen vehicle. It had the wrong license plate on it. Uh, Officer Schur contacted the individual, Patrick Loyola, who immediately exited the driver's seat of the vehicle. Uh, upon contact with Officer Schur, he started to run. Officer Schur did get engaged in a foot chase. Uh, he caught m- m- Mr. Loyola uh, not, not far away in the front yard of a house. Um, from then, there was a use of force that was progressive in nature. Officer Schur started with empty hand tactics that weren't successful. He went to the use of a taser, which was not, not successful. And then once the two men were on the ground, uh, Patrick Loyola started to gain control of the officer's taser. And it was at that point uh, when Officer Schur lost control of the taser, when Mr. Loyola had when Mr. Loyola had possession of the taser that Christopher Schur, um, in the moment, um, did use uh, deadly force um, in, in this situation. You understand the significance of if the suspect gets a hold of taser. A lot of people don't. And we said the same. Yes. Uh, that it didn't matter how big, how bad, how strong, how great a fighter you were as a cop. Someone's always luckier are crazier they can get you one punch on the button on your chin you're out and quite often they get a hold of your weapon and you're killed with your own weapon so when the suspect gets a hold of taser what does that mean in real life for police officers so the reason why it is a deadly force situation if someone gets a hold of a police officer's taser is very simple. And it's not because of the actual shock. So a, a lot of us were tased in the police academy, so it's not the, the, the five seconds of riding the light, lightning that's deadly. What's deadly is that if an individual fights with a police officer, takes their taser, and uses the taser on the officer, the officer is incapacitated for at least five seconds. During those five seconds, the individual has the opportunity to grab the police officer's gun and shoot him or grab a rock and smash in the officer's head. It's because the taser can incapacitate, and that's what makes it dangerous. Long story short, Christopher Schur is now facing charges, correct? Yes, sir. He is facing second-degree murder charges. And that case is still wide open, uh, and no one knows how it's going to go. I imagine that the defense needs financial help. That there's all kinds of needs. What's the number one need they have that you are aware of? So the number one need is there's a Facebook group called Stand With Sure. Uh, it's the Facebook group. It's pretty much the hub of where all the information is. There is links to donate. There are um, events and raffles that happen, uh, links and information on how to donate and help the family. And then also almost, almost just as important to learn about the case. Um, so it's the Stand With Sure Facebook group, and that's really the best place for people to go to get information and to be able to help and to learn about this particular case. How do you spell his last name? S-C-H-U-R-E. 
U-R-R. Stand with Sure. Stand with Sure Facebook group. So check it out and and do some reading. And here's another thing. I tell Bill the time. You want to show your support for police, share. When you see content that you agree with, share it. Because we are always fighting this uh, social media shadow banning and censorship. Uh, it doesn't matter how how vanilla your content is. If they label you as police, they're gonna they're gonna shadow ban you. So please share it. I, I wish him well. Actually- I, w- I wish there was something I could do. Uh, I, I don't know that there is though. Other than doing you just said, join a group and and share content. Other than that, I'm not sure. And this radio show. Other than that, I'm, what what can people do? What people can do is just 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 uh, learn about the case, share just like you said. And and when when you said that, that's that's exactly where I was going to go next. Is because that's how I got involved in this group. Is about a year ago, I started writing some, I started doing some social media content, uh, talking about police issues. Um, and I, I wrote an article on Substack about this case, and it was uh, that. The, the article I wrote got to the stand with uh, stand with sure group, and that's how I became involved in this group. Um, just from that, they 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 appreciated the, the honest look that, that I had and the the, the objective case breakdown um, in this officer involved shooting, and that was shared. Um, I think it's been viewed on Substack over over three thousand times or so. Um, but that that is an important thing that if you see a piece of content out there that that is that is important that you think is relevant, just being able to share it so other people can also learn about these cases that is un unbelievably important i'm gonna have to check out substack i'm i'm not on there i'm on facebook you name it but you're all over social media as well what are some of the locations and how can people find you yeah, so you can go ahead and find me at Police Law News almost everywhere, um, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, and then on Substack at Police Law Newsletter. Um, uh, if you sign up there, it's a free newsletter. I usually write uh, one or two articles a week. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a great, it's a great venue because um, I started with my social media content on TikTok, and it, uh, as silly as it sounds, it kind of took off. I think I have 130,000 uh, followers on there, but, you know, trying to get serious and really talk about some of these and break down these important issues in policing. It's really difficult to do uh, with a character count on TikTok. So places like YouTube and, and Substack really are where more important and substantial conversations can be heard. So um, even though I make a lot of TikTok videos, really what I enjoy most is writing on Substack. See, I'm not on TikTok at all. I, I, I delete my phone and YouTube, I'm I, I focus really on audio. Uh, YouTube is something I, I say I'm going to experiment with. But you, you have one thing in common that I do as well, Linktree. Uh, and people aren't familiar with Linktree. It's linktr.ee forward slash police law news. Uh, Linktree is a location where you can find everything. So, again, just look for police law news. And if you can't find it, when you do a Google search, go to linktr.ee forward slash police law news chris i want to thank you for your service i want to thank you for all that you're doing for our fellow officers and really appreciate you being guests on law enforcement today show very much appreciated thank you sir it was truly an honor i'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the law enforcement today radio show the law enforcement today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. 
I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.